say. Um, but the Colossian church was a new church, immature believers, and they were being tempted to look other places than Jesus. And uh, in Paul's wisdom to diagnose their spiritual problem, he didn't think to add more gimmicks or tricks to the Christian life or experience. He only knew enough to know in true wisdom to say they just haven't seen the completeness of the beauty of Jesus Christ yet. And so all he does is go back to show them this Christ that you have had preached to you and this Jesus whom you have believed, you must look again because there's much more to him uh, than your hearts would understand. And so with that purpose, we'll look today in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, particularly with a call uh, to suffer like Jesus Christ. And here is Paul speaking to the Colossians. Verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of his flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Imagine, Paul is saying that in the first century, the time of him writing this letter, only a few years after the ministry of Christ, he is saying that this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation. It's already out. The cat's out of the bag. Reminds me, if you remember, on January of 2020, you heard about pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan in China. And then you thought to yourself, as most we all did, oh man, they should watch their sanitation over there with an outbreak in China. But little did we know that, was, that outbreak already was in the whole world by principle, by potential. Uh, and that it was only three months later in March where the Western cultures began to shut down. It's that similar thing where Paul is saying the gospel is out. It, it has been proclaimed to all creation. It is out. The cat is out of the bag. You can't put it back. The gospel, the redemption of Jesus Christ, and that word being proclaimed has met the world. And now Paul and us with him uh, have this commission to extend that proclamation of the king by the emissary ministry of the church. And he goes on to describe what that looks like. And it's unique to him, but particular for us as well. How has he brought the gospel? Verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. For the sake of, the go- for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so Paul describes his ministry to a church he never met or directly was in contact with, his ministry of the gospel. And he, does a, he leads it, the spearhead of that ministry described here is suffering, suffering. And if it was that way, this is something I, may, I might do with, with uh, my, my one daughter. I'll explain one thing, explain another, and then let her try to go, get a conclusion. They think about that for us, like what, what Paul's doing to us. They're saying, Jesus suffered, okay. and then Paul suffered, and then we look at each other and we're like, and my life's supposed to go really well. And th- that's not the conclusion. To, so Jesus suffered. And Paul, a foundational apostle to the church, suffered. And then you and I should look at each other and be like, uh-oh. We're in this together. Like, we're all in the same. This boat particularly could be a metaphor. If we flipped it around, the top kind of does look like a boat. I thought about that before. We're in this boat together and we're here to suffer. But at least we're together and Christ is with us. But that's the way it goes. And so let's look at that. How this is God's plan uh, to bring redemption fully to the world. It's not enjoyable to talk about suffering so much. It's the dark corners of our life that we wish not to discuss and de-emphasize and not bring out into the open. It's not necessarily the living room. We invite all our friends into our suffering portion of our life. Uh, It's usually a dark corner um, that we don't like to talk about. Uh, But we can look at it today because we don't look at it uh, by ourselves. We look at it with Jesus Christ who suffered beyond what our mind could comprehend. And so if you are suffering or going through suffering, you have a hand upon your shoulder by a man who has suffered more than ever could be. We do not suffer alone. We also do not suffer alone because we are with one another. Paul says this, I rejoice in my suffering. Now, that is not a trick. That is not a gimmick. That's not just saying, well, I just, you know, suffering, I just make myself happy about it, right? The verse says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. If you have a goal for your suffering, you can tolerate it. If you have no reason for your suffering, if, you do not, if you're not able to internalize your suffering and find a reason for it, it will break you. It will kill you. Literally, you could kill yourself. That's usually the last step people take with their suffering. I can't take this anymore. I have no reason for it. I don't, I'm not able to manage this. Life is too much. I have to go to plan B. There, maybe it's better to not have life. Right? But if there's a purpose for your suffering, the way God has made you, the way your mind works, you need to know there's an end, a telos, a goal, a rationale, a reason. If it's irrational suffering, that is hell. That is hell. To have suffering for no obvious need. Jesus' warning of hell is constantly described as weeping and gnashing your teeth, having pain and frustration, whether it be of some type of psychological consternation, but not having the reason for it, not knowing why. 
And Paul, in this letter, is in prison. And he is writing because he is suffering. But he says it is a rejoice to him that he is suffering because it is for their sake. It is for the church. It is for the redemption of the world. If you can tie your suffering some way into the actual redemption of the world, and I don't mean grand thoughts, thoughts of grandeur and self-inflated ego that you are saving the world and your suffering is there, but as Christians, we're called to be united to Christ. And through Christ's suffering, he has saved the world. And Paul has plugged himself into that narrative and seen himself for his sufferings for the purpose that they are. And he can actually mean it when he's in prison saying, I rejoice in this. I know why this is happening, and I take joy in it in spite of it. Now, this is what is so remarkable about the book of Colossians, is that Paul is trying to show Jesus Christ to be supreme above everything. And what is an amazing thing is he makes a turn in the road that's unexpected. He actually speaks something against uh, the completeness or fullness of Christ. So as we saw From uh, last week, Paul opens up to speak of Jesus as being Lord of creation and Lord of redemption. He says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible. Everything that's ever been made is made by God. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Jesus is above all of it. Okay, so this is Jesus being described as being Lord of all creation. He fills everything. And he's also Lord of all redemption. Paul went on to say, he is the head of the body, the church, the redeemed people of God. He is the beginning, the firstborn from not just creation, but the dead. That is all of redemption, being reborn again. He is the first to enter into the glorious resurrection that awaits you and I. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then this amazing phrase where Paul ends, and he says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that ends that section of Colossians, which in the ancient church was regarded as one of maybe perhaps one of the first poems ever written about Jesus. And he ends it with making peace by the blood of his cross. By his suffering, by his affliction, by his tribulation. And then there's an unexpected turn that we see this morning. Immediately, Paul goes on to say that something is lacking about Jesus. After pretty much saying the most amazing, grandiose things you could say about Christ. It's like, and maybe your experience is the same, when I'm driving down a highway at 70 miles an hour and my exit, I forget, without telling anyone in the car because we could miss the exit, I just turn really fast and everyone in the car jostles. And it's a little shocking, but we make the exit. It's a similar turn, a complete turn. You wouldn't expect Paul to do this. He just turns. He mentions that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross, making peace by the blood of the cross, his suffering. And he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh and filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What? 
filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Meanwhile, Jesus is Lord over all entire creation, Lord over all entire redemption, making peace with heaven and earth. What else is not heaven and earth? Everything by the blood of his cross. And then the very next line he pulls over and says, and just turns over and says, because Christ's affliction, his suffering is lacking. And I'm feeling it. I'm doing it. I'm filling up his suffering. He didn't finish it all. What? Does that mean after everything you just said about how he is everything? And the whole point of the letter to the Colossians is to demonstrate the completeness of Jesus. To not take your eyes off Jesus. He is the Alpha and Omega, firstborn of dead and creation. He is everything. All things were made through him, by him, and for him. He holds up all things by the power of his word. He is Jesus. And Paul in prison is coming alongside to say, I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. The word he uses for it. Affliction. Philipsis is the word that means trouble, tribulation, oppression. When Jesus speaks about the end of the age, he speaks about a tribulation. In Revelation or Matthew 24, the end of the world kind of stuff, tribulation. But the word also can mean just any affliction you've had. Any affliction that comes with this life. And here is Paul saying, I am filling that up. I am completing it. The jar isn't full. I'm filling it to the brim. I am actually, my suffering is going into this thing. It has nothing to do with Jesus' salvation or atonement. Atonement meaning how we make one with God, at one minute with God. Paul's the one that says that all the time. He can't mean that. The whole point of the letter to Colossians is to make Jesus everything. In another place, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? It's complete. He's done. Jesus' suffering, his atonement on the cross, has completed everything we need for our salvation. Or Hebrews 10, 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy. That is, by one single offering, that blood that dropped from the cross, by that one offering, he has perfected for all time, never to be again, never to be sacrificed again, never to have any way of salvation other than this one way through Jesus Christ. He has perfected for all time those who are becoming holy and coming close to the Lord and being sanctified to be holy as he is holy. For without holiness, no one can see God. And that whole beatific vision of beauty of Jesus Christ is required absolute holiness and there's only one way to get that and that is through one sacrifice that was offered one time for all of time for this age and in the age to come and so then what does it mean when Paul is saying I'm filling up what was lacking with that the way to describe it is nothing more than to think of your own life how did you come to know Jesus Christ It is not because you knelt at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. By God's plan of saving us through his beautiful, glorious son being weakened and shedding off his glory and clothing himself in humanity and tying himself to time and space in this creation. He has by consequent limited himself 
in affecting that salvation. That there was a separation between Jesus and Paul. Jesus and the Colossians. Jesus and you and I. That there is actually work to be done for the full rewards of Christ's suffering. There was actually a filling up of the affliction of Jesus Christ. That Paul self-consciously was interpreting his own life in that lens. The reason we can think that Paul means it this way, that is, to, to, to have a present demonstration of the passion of Jesus. That's what's lacking. A present demonstration that you actually see, hear, and bleed with. That is what's lacking in Christ's affliction 2,000 years ago. He says this in a letter to the Philippians where he uses the same phrase. Philippians is a letter he written from prison the same exact time that he wrote the letter to the Colossians. He was in prison in Rome. A church in Philippi, many miles away, sought to serve him. They were trying to love him. You needed to be fed in those Roman situations. You needed someone to support you. You needed gifts to be sent your way. They didn't have a cafeteria. And so the Philippians send a man by the name of Epaphroditus to give gifts and support to Paul in prison. And Philippians 2.30, Paul says this, You should honor this man in the Lord. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his own life, and this is the phrase, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Philippians 2.30. The Philippians are removed from Paul. They send one person on their behalf to risk his identity. You're going to come and serve Paul who's in prison for being a Christian. Maybe Epaphroditus gets locked up for being a Christian as well. He's literally laying his life on the line to go serve Paul. And then we're told he's potentially sick unto death. He risked his very life to come to Paul in prison. And Paul says, I thank you for that man you sent me. He was filling up what was lacking from you. That is, I know you wish you could have done the same. But you're removed from me by distance and time. So he filled up what was lacking of that. That same exact phrase, the two same words, fulfilling and lacking, is what Paul uses here. He's saying, I am fulfilling what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Christ has that love for you. He was afflicted for you 2,000 years ago. But Paul is saying, now look at me. Let me show you sacrificial love like that. Let me show you the passion that I laid my whole life. I have ended my life. I am an enemy of Rome. I am soon to be executed, if not now, the next time they lock me up. I have laid it all out so that the gospel would reach you. Colossians. I am filling up the same passionate love of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that he did all his ministry through lives inside of me. Now look at me. He says that without any shame. I am filling that up. You have seen the gospel. You have not just had the gospel explained to you. You have seen it demonstrated through the same type of passionate, sacrificial love. The afflicted tribulation of Paul's life was explained and demonstrated before them. 
That, that's amazing. If we just pause there and, and put that all in perspective to us. That is the Christian life. That's the Christian life. That's not just Jesus. And yes, it is Paul uniquely as an apostle. But it's not because he was an apostle. That's you and me. There's many reasons to be afflicted in this life. Life is hard no matter what, Christian or not. You're giving your life away every day and you're dying. Why not die for a good purpose? That's the only joy in suffering because you're going to suffer. Your body's withering away. Why not give it away? Why not just give it away in love? I rejoice in my suffering. He could be in a prison rejoicing by his own volition. He's only giving away what he cannot keep. A man is a fool to hold on to what is not his. Paul's suffering particularly is for the church, he says. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's different. That's the reason to suffer in this life. Anything you do, there's only one institution that lasts forever. Apple, Tesla, the United States government, no. There's only one human institution installed by God himself that will enter into the new age. That will actually be in the beatific, glorious presence of God. And that's the church. Suffer for the church. That is, suffer for the glory of this mystery that he would describe. It's unique to Paul, obviously, because he's a foundational apostle. Unlike you and I, he was on the beginning of a brand new thing called the New Covenant Church. And he suffered in a unique way to bring in some era, a new era of redemption that you and I have been swimming in for millennia. But he was on the tiptoe of the shoreline of that era. And so his suffering was uniquely foundational, something that you and I are not particularly called to. But it's also true for you and I. Paul describes himself as a minister, a steward of the church. A steward is someone who administrates or manages someone's house, a rich person's house. He saw himself as being given the keys to the house of the church, just like Peter was and the other apostles, that he was supposed to manage this thing well. He said, I became a minister according to the stewardship, a steward of the house, a stewardship given to me from God. It is given me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now that is a reason to suffer. We can all suffer for very reasons. What we're saying here, what Paul's saying in this context is to suffer for the word of God. That's different. Suffer for the word of God, to make the word of God fully known. And, and I don't just mean extreme or severe persecution. I mean when you open up your mouth to speak truth into a whole world that is anti-Christus, anti-Christ, this anti-Christ age, it is emotionally and psychologically taxing. It bothers you. It bothers, it is, I say personally as a pastor, week by week, bringing the word, filling my soul up to bring the word out to have something in here to go out, that is exhausting. And it's worth it. 
Because I'm dying anyway. Why not die doing this? But it's the same for you. Speak the word in love and let them see your passion. Your, your, when I say passion, I don't mean excitedness. I mean your suffering life, like you're a passionate. You would give it, you would give something to them. Let them see that. That's the filling up of the thing they can't see. Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. But give yourself to that. You will be toiled. You will be spent. And I guarantee if you toil to get a little extra money to buy that bigger boat, Satan won't care. If you toil to speak the word into the world, you will be tried. Your mind will be beset. You will find yourself locking arms in a spiritual battle. Previous to this text, he just went on to describe how Jesus has become supreme to all the principalities and powers of thrones and authorities and rulers. So you are entering into a spiritual interaction that the only principalities or any of the evil ones of this age do not want you to do is to suffer for one particular thing to make the word of God fully known. That is a unique suffering that you will go into. And many people choose rather to just rid themselves of that kind of burden. But it is a burden to take on with joy, out of love, out of love, the same love that Christ gave to this world. Another way this is unique, of course, to Paul as an apostle um, is that he is revealing the word as a mystery, he says. Um, The word of God was made uh, fully known. This mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to the saints. There are only two ages in the New Testament, the way they speak of them. There is uh, this age and the one to come. Paul is saying that all the ages, uh, if you read the end of uh, the book of Daniel, um, he's been given oracles and things to uh, know that are mysterious. And Daniel particularly inquires, and he would do this throughout the prophecy, when he was given a vision or a dream, he would inquire to the meaning, and God usually would return by giving a clear interpretation for him as a prophet, a seer, to know. Right? But when you get to Daniel 12... The very last chapter, he's been given this mystery, and then Daniel returns to say, what does this mean? And he said, seal it up. It's a mystery with scrolls. It's not for you to know now until the times in which this will be revealed. When Paul mentions the mystery that's been revealed, he's tapping back into the Old Testament to say, this is the thing that God wasn't letting us in on. This is what God was trying to do, but he didn't want us to know. Particularly this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that it's not just all the Messiah coming, new heavens, new earth, kingdom, done with sin, perfect light, city Zion on a hill. We'll get there. But the mystery was, there was another step to this that he didn't want us to know about, but now it has been revealed that he's actually moving inside of us before he fills the whole cosmos, which he's already established in Colossians is his prerogative and right to do. He is in the process of uniting heaven and earth all into his son, creation through redemption. But the process to get to there, the mystery is, he's going to put Christ inside of you. That is a particular potent, powerful indwelling of the Spirit that is unique, that's never been done before throughout God's plan of redemption. Why do you do that? Why can't God just come down and save the whole world? Why does Paul have to be in prison? The invitation for you and I is to realize his plans. He has put Christ in you. And 
And I just don't know any other way this works except through suffering and sacrificial love, that hidden glory breaks out and people see the glory of God that way. Because this is how Paul describes his whole ministry. 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, we, Paul's saying me as an apostle, I am afflicted every way, but I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but not driven to despair. I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down and not destroyed. I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. I am dying. I am a dying man. I have died to my will. I have died to my desires. I live only for this. I have died. I am always carrying in my body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in my body. That's the filling up of the sacrifice of Christ. That the manifestation, the demonstration of that passionate love, it only comes out, it breaks out through this jar of clay. It just is a dirty, messy body, just like everyone else's body. But some of these bodies are united to the eternal Christ by the Spirit, and they have Christ in them, which is their hope of future glory, though it does not look like it now. It just looks like a normal jar of clay. But if you start messing with that jar, if you start entering into the tribulations and turmoils and sufferings of this life, the jar begins to, in some way, the metaphor breaks down, but the jar cracks open, as it were, and the glorious light of the love of Jesus Christ bursts out. That is, through your suffering, you demonstrate the love and the passion of Jesus Christ. That is God's plan. He wanted to put it inside of us to not reveal the full glory of his kingdom yet, but have it hidden in jars of clay that would be demonstrated or manifested through us taking on that same suffering that Christ suffered for us, for the world to see, for angels and demons in every principality, to see an actual transformation of these wicked, selfish beings that we are, and so that we actually become more like him, not just through a snap of a finger, but through the long, grueling, sanctification of a life riddled with toil and pain and rejoicing because there is glory locked up inside of us that we have unity with him that's never been had before. This power, Paul says, I toil struggling with all his energy, his energy that powerfully works in me. If you give yourself to this and forget about yourself, And actually consider of presenting each one, Paul says, mature in Christ. You are barely mature in Christ. I am barely mature in Christ. He must work through us. He's hidden this in jars of clay so that it would not be of us. We do not all live or always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is working in us, but life in you. That same principle that absolutely works only uniquely through Jesus' atonement, his death for our life, death worked in Jesus, absolute perfect union, union with God, justification was given to us through us. Now, in a smaller version, that same principle, Jesus wants us to walk out. That death works in us. Die to our own desires, die to our own passions, die to our own selfishness, so that we would serve others, not to get something from them, but to point them to Jesus. See, that's the perfect selfless act of love. You can serve others in uh, 
commerce or, or commercial uh, works because it's a transaction. It's, it's a latitudinal reciprocal relationship. I'll serve you, you serve me. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. If you serve someone with the word, if you serve someone with the gospel, you're, what you're doing is dying to yourself and you're trying to fix their eyes on the glory of Jesus. You're trying to make much of Jesus. You are getting yourself out of the way entirely. It truly is an absolute death. There's nothing in it for you because if you succeed, and they come to see Jesus for all his glory and beauty, it's all about Jesus. You truly are dying to yourself for their good. What is their greatest good except for them to see nothing else except the treasure of Jesus? That's it. And then you die. But, but the Son of God gave his own life. He came into this world to say, it doesn't matter. I'm giving my life. And I'm the only one that really actually has it. You all are robbing my, you borrow time from me. I'm the author of life. This beautiful gospel is not just for Paul. This method of ministry is not just for him. It's a universal call to all of us as disciples. Oh, I love it. How Jesus in Matthew 16. We'll look at Matthew 16 and then end with a story. Matthew 16 is where Jesus starts the church. This is the reason Paul is suffering. I'm suffering for, for his body, which is the church. Matthew 16, Jesus starts the church. Upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Peter confesses Jesus Christ. says, you are the rock. He goes on and says, huh, I need to go to the cross. And then Peter says, no, we're going to go be triumphant and not suffer. And Jesus is like, you don't know what we're talking about. We're going to go suffer. And so he suffers. And then he says this, If anyone will not come after me and deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy to be called my apostle. No, he's not worthy to be called my disciple. Basic Christianity 101. The cross is on our back. We are dying to ourselves. This is not just an apostle thing. It's not just a Jesus thing. You and I are called to take this on. Because locked inside of this is a demonstration of the glory of God that cannot break out any other way. It's through our afflictions. It's through our persecutions. It's through our tribulations. For the purpose of the word of God. And the maturation of Christians. That is an exhausting work. To mature others in Christ. When you yourself are, well, not Jesus, let's be honest. Pastor's up here, I'll raise my hand. I need to work on myself. And also need to work on this person. Oh my gosh, I need Jesus a lot. Like, I need him, for I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works in me. To, to, to go to work and build a wall. How rewarding. How rewarding. You strike the joints, you level it, and you put it in place. And you walk away, and that wall will be there before you even die. It will outlast you. What is it to mature others in Christ? How laborious. Where is it? What is it? Spiritual things, relationships, sins, falling away, backsliding. To actually take responsibility for someone else's maturation in Christ. It's exhausting. Satan doesn't care if you build a wall. He's very much opposed to the building of the church. But Christ has promised the gates of hell will not prevail. We will build the church. 
Unfortunately, we will have to do it through suffering, as our Lord did. We must take up our cross. It is a call for all of us to suffer. Crosses is where you go to die. Second, Timothy 3, Paul promises all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. It is a toil for a mother and father to raise up a child in the Lord. If it's not hard, you're not doing it right. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be actively involved. If we as a church would take it serious, take on the responsibility given to us to look at this community with every surrounding perimeter of mileage and say, we are in some way obligated to disciple this community in Jesus Christ. That will be exhausting. That will be exhausting. I like this story, and it's not scripture. It's about the Apostle John. I think it's beautiful. Eusebius, church father, says that it's true. You're not obligated to believe it. As I said, it's not scripture. But think of it. What would it have been like to be an apostle like Paul, particularly like John or someone who actually walked with Jesus? I wish I could be a better pastor to you. It would have been better if we all were there with Jesus. Paul could have sat at his feet and been like, wow, that is the way to do it. But we can't. John actually was. And one of these unique quirks in church history, we're actually given a little bit of a window into something that is a little more of what could have been a transaction between John. This man who rested his head on the chest of Jesus Christ, who was the apostle that he loved, he had an intimate relationship with our Lord. We're told in Eusebius, one of the early church uh, historians that wrote around 400 AD, he introduces this by saying, this is not a tale, this is a true account that I have from my sources. She's not only removed from the apostles by a few years, if you count Polycarp and a few others, that you're getting only a few generations removed from John, which is remarkable that we have this on record. John, the apostle John, left a young man to the care, we're told in the story, to a bishop of a church. He was a new convert, and John, being an apostle, had to go other places for long distances and long time. And we're told, Eusebius says, John is quoted as saying, I leave this young man in your keeping with all earnestness in the presence of the church and Christ as my witness. That he's saying, I am leaving this, this pastor, this bishop of a church, I am leaving this young man into your care. Present him mature in Christ. Disciple him in the faith. Labor and toil for his soul. And so John leaves. The story continues, the young man was led astray by other uh, young men his age. They ended up getting involved in idleness and robbery, starting their own uh, gang with weapons, uh, potentially in the wilderness, I'm, I'm assuming, in the ancient world, that's usually what would happen. They would rob you where there's no cities or no under account, and uh, this was like pirates without ships. It was a pretty common thing in the ancient world. And uh, you know Jesus' parable of the Samaritan is set in that, in that setting, a man coming and robbing someone in the wilderness. Well, this young man gets wrapped up into it, and he grows up older, and time elapses. John, the apostle, comes back to the pastor and says, Come now, bishop, pay me back the deposit which Christ and I left in your keeping. 
And the pastor responds and said, he is dead to God. He has walked away from the faith. And then normally in churches, what happens next is, oh gosh darn. Well, we got a budget meeting next week. And so we're told, John, who saw something more in Jesus than you and I never had the privilege, ripped his garments there, beat his head and began growing, groaning. He grabbed a horse and he ordered someone else to direct him to the man's location. And he broke through the ranks of this gang with weapons in the wilderness, found the man from a distance, called out to him. Out of shame, we're told, this man began running from John out of conviction for walking away from Christ. And John responded and said, If need, I gladly suffer death as the Lord suffers for us. And he cries out to him, Stop, believe. And he says, Christ has sent me. Christ has sent me for your soul. Turn back to Christ. And he enters into this den of thieves and robbers who could easily kill him and beat him as the old man he is. And he knows that. And he says, I would gladly die as Christ has died for us. Stop. Believe. Christ has sent me. Well, that strikes differently when your life's on the line. If someone walks away from the faith... You don't even notice. Or here in the church, pastorally, we say, well, we'll just change our spreadsheet roles. It's just a guy. Why would you expose yourself to that harm? The man turns, weeps, repents, comes back to Christ is the story. That, there's something there that's missing in the church. There's something there within the first generation of the apostles that they saw and knew of Christ. To fill up this suffering. Fill up the demonstrations of Christ's passion. That's something you and I need. That's something we are called to. To present everyone mature in Christ. Dear Father God, I pray that you would do this for us. That we would take no soul small or insignificant, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't think us insignificant. We thank you, Lord, that you remembered us, you saw us. Lord, you know we're not beautiful. You know we have so many things that have covered us in filth and shame. Oh, Father, your love, please show us what it is to be loved by you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction in this 21st century. That we would, that we would have this passionate love working out through us as jars of clay. In Jesus' name, amen.